Our next storyteller. Next storyteller. Your next storyteller. Our next storyteller. Hello and welcome to The Narrators. This podcast collects stories from our live events where people share true stories based on a theme. Your next story comes from musician, educator, activist, and Flowbots co-founder Stefan Brackett. Stefan shared this story on September 18th, 2019. The theme of the evening was tools. When I was 11 years old, on a beautiful Sunday morning, after three years of constant dedication, hard work, blood, sweat, and tears, I was able to do something that had heretofore been impossible. I punched my father in the face. <laughs> now, I could just like leave it there and not give you any context, and that would be horrible, but let's, let's... I want to rewind a little bit and tell you about who my father was. So I don't know how many of you, when you grew up, were told, don't play with fire. My father was like, no, you can play with fire. Just do it in the driveway and make sure you have the fire extinguisher. My father was the guy who came home from work with a sledgehammer and the old TV. And he's like, go to it. Just make sure your sister's wearing the safety glasses. <laughs> My father was the kind of guy who was always working on the house. And he was doing this kind of as a, a love letter to my mother. Now, my mother, who was often tired after coming home from being a lawyer, did not necessarily appreciate the house always being covered in plastic and drywall and sawdust, but it was a love letter just the same. There was one time in particular where my mother was going on a business trip, and as she was heading off to Stapleton, she was like, Bill? She wasn't like, don't set the kids on fire, like, don't send them on some crazy ritual. She wasn't saying any of those things. She's like, don't start any new projects. <laughs> My dad's like, yep, got it, got it. And the minute that she left and the taxi picked her up to take her to Stapleton, he hands me that sledgehammer again. And then he draws on the wall in a big piece of chalk and he's like, knock that out. Now, as I was growing into being a teenager, I had a lot of angst and anger. This was kind of a dream come true. So I just remember like just, my mother had just left and already I'm just like smacking the crap out of this brick wall, knocking it out. At the end of the weekend, my mother comes in there's a beautiful bay window where there wasn't one before. She kind of looks at it, rolls her eyes. She's like, thank you for not doing that while I'm here. <laughs> so my father's love language was hard work. That was how he communicated. That's how he really bonded. And I'm not saying that my dad was one of those emotionally closed off, like uh, that 70s show red type dudes. No, no. He was actually really great about like talking about where he was, but like, when he really wanted to connect, he wanted to do it over hard work. So a lot of those summers where I was standing up for hours putting up drywall, I considered that bonding. Or at least that's how I deal with it to save myself on therapy. But no, <laughs> but we would bond often doing like this kind of work. And only as an adult did I realize why that happened. So let's go back to the 1940s in rural Virginia, uh, which was not necessarily a great time for a black man to be anywhere, my father used to go to work when he was 11 years old, picking tobacco in the tobacco fields, which is quite cotton adjacent. So it was really uncomfortable for me when he was telling me these stories. And I knew he wasn't getting paid anything, but he was like telling me like, hey son, when I was your age, like when I came back from, from the tobacco plantation, which is also uncomfortable, there would be so much tar on my jeans that when I took them off, they would just stand in the corner. I was like, wow, so you're telling me I should get a job? <laughs> and 
No, he wasn't. But what I found out is that growing up in the Jim Crow South meant that my father heard no from society more than anything else. So he became infatuated with any kind of tool or information because it, it automatically meant that it wasn't for him. It's like, oh, a middle school education? Well, that's not for you. He's like, well, let me see. Like college education? Oh, that's not for you. Let me see. I mean, you've already told me no, so that's as low as it gets. So he would try that. Every single opportunity and dream for him was a matter of a tool and a skill set. And since the world was already telling him no, he had to find out if that were true. That's how he went through the world. And in that situation, in that household, my father was giving me tools on a daily basis. Every day he was trying to give me some other tool, either literal, his garage was just filled with tools and all these things. He had trained himself to pretty much become a contractor by using those Time Life books. Now, many of you might not remember what those are, but for like 1995 from 1-800-NUMBER, he became like Bob Vila. You might not know who Bob Vila is, but maybe like uh, Tim the Two-Man Taylor. I don't, I don't know what your references would be for handiwork, but that's what he was. Like he trained himself to do that. He's like, hey, I'm not going to let anybody hide anything from me in a book. But as we grew up, something started taking my father's tools away. What that was, was a glioblastoma. Now, some of you might know that word when you talk about like uh, John McCain. It's a brain tumor. And it's lethal usually as, at the size of a pea. What we found out like, after my father died is that he had a glioblastoma about the size of a tennis ball. So he had had it for about 16 years. So what had happened is that gradually that tumor started changing the man that my father was and started taking away his gifts and his ability to bond and his communication. And he started becoming stranger and angrier and he started becoming absent and invisible. And at a certain point in time, we kind of parted ways. When I was 13 years old, he had made some choices that I did not agree with. So I decided that me and my sister were gonna go off and try to figure things out on our own. And that's when all of the tools that he gave me started manifesting in my hands. And so years and years later, 2014, after Trayvon was murdered, after Eric Garner, after Mike Brown, I found a fury in me. And I found my tools being taken away. I found the tools that he gave me to navigate a world that was against me were being stripped from me. I was so furious. I was getting to the point where I was like, hey, if a police officer stops me, he will have to shoot me in the front because I am not going down that way. And when I came to that point, it took me back to that summer day when I punched my father in the face. The background is, my father was a very experienced martial artist. He had a black belt in Taekwondo. When I was a kid, I idolized him. I saw all of his Taekwondo posters. I saw his old trainings. I saw these pictures in black and white of him sitting in perfect splits in his karate gi, and I wanted to be that man. So I remember at age five, I started asking him to train me. And I'd watch way too many Kung Fu movies. So I'm like sitting down on my knees like, Father, teach me. <laughs> and every time he'd be like, no. Or like, you're not ready. Or you don't want it enough. Or, okay, but after you shovel two tons of uh, mulch. And then I'd shovel the mulch and nothing would happen. But anyway, <laughs> bonding. Um, after one of these days where I was like sitting down working with him. 
and he'd brought in a whole bunch of uh, gravel for us to work on a project. Halfway through the project, he's like, son, come on, come downstairs. He takes me downstairs and he shows me a front snap kick. And he's like, do that till I come back. So three hours later, seven-year-old me, I'm just like, and I haven't stopped. And he's like, good, very good. You ready for the next step? And I'm like, yes, yes, switch. <laughs> and he goes back upstairs. And I kicked for three hours. So when he started training me, he didn't hold back. He was really trying to show me how to use my power and my powerlessness. So after three years of training, we were out in the front yard and I saw an opening where I never saw one before and I was able to get a quick punch in. And at that moment, it was like, I don't know if any of y'all remember the Mortal Kombat commercials back in the day or the Surge commercial, just like, like just this, like my first taste of toxic masculinity was just incredible. I was just like, yes, I punched this over. I made him irrelevant, this is amazing. And, and all of this happened in like a millisecond after that glorious point of contact. And my dad was just like, stop. I'm just like, okay, I won, so cool. <laughs> what you gotta say now, old man? No, I didn't say those things, but in my head, you know how that works. He's like, stop. Son, how does your fist feel? And the minute that he dropped out of that combat stance and started engaging me and looking me in the eye and calling me, Son, I felt that rush leaving my body. And I, I reflected on my fist, and as that adrenaline was seeping away, I'm like, well, my fist hurts. It's like, yes. How do you think my face feels? <laughs> I guess it hurts. And he's like, yes. Why would you choose to do that to anybody? In that moment, he was trying to teach me a very real lesson about violence and being a man. There is the myth about how fun and exciting and how impervious we can be. And there's the reality that we are directly choosing to harm and injure another person. He wanted me to see that very clearly. And that's a lesson that I go back to at any point in time when I start feeling that rage come up out of me. He was trying to show me that at any point in time, regardless of what the provocation is, if we are thinking and we have our tools in hand, we have options. And options are freedom. That's what he learned when he was navigating the Jim Crow South. That's what he learned when he was navigating being a black family in Denver in the early 80s. And that's what he was doing when he was trying to raise a young man in a society that already had a jail cell with his name on it. He was giving me tools. He was giving me options. He was giving me choices. So long after he died and long after his options were taken away from him, I spend my time, my work, my music, my art form trying to remind myself and young people in similar situations that they always have choices if they have tools. Thank you. The Narrators is produced by me, Ron Doyle, Sidney Crane, and Aaron Rollman, with help from Karen Wachtel, Jesse Witten, and Scott Carney. Jesse edited this episode. We'd like to thank our sponsors, Bumport Theatre Company, Illegal Pete's, From the Hip Photo, and Great Divide Brewing Company. 
Our theme music is by Whalehawk, and we'd also like to thank Milk Blossoms, who provided the outro music you're listening to right now. If you're in Denver, join us for one of our live monthly shows, which take place every third Wednesday of the month at Bumport Theater in Denver, Colorado. You can subscribe to this podcast for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please leave a review if you can. It helps other people find our stories. For more information about today's storyteller or the narrators, check the show notes for this episode or visit thenarrators.org. Thanks for listening.